What an occasion for rejoicing we have today. Every day, but especially today, given this week's events. We're going to be finishing the last sermon in the subsection of Christ is King over the church this week, and we'll deal with the topic of conquering, the church conquering. How timely, how timely of it for the Lord to coordinate such a message on such a day as this as we celebrate the overturning of Roe versus Wade. He's making us, has made us, and is making us a conquering church. But before we examine that more carefully, we have to consider that we have a conquering Lord. The reason we're a conquering church is because we have a conquering Lord. Christianity is a religion of conquering, and it is a religion. Some people don't like that word. But it is indeed a religion. It's a religion of conquering, overcoming, victory, and winning. And the world tries to shame us on this point, as you're well aware, from even using these words or entertaining these concepts. And, but it's really a tactic they use to disarm us so that we can say, oh, okay, we, we won't do that. And then they aggressively come in and they seek to conquer because the devil's prowling around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You see it in all these different movements, particularly the LGBTQRSTUV movement and all the other raging secularist movements, they, they, they have no intent to listen to us, but they'd like to tell us how we should speak and act towards them in order to win them. And it usually involves not saying anything offensive. We just, we just want to be equal with you all. No, they want to conquer in the same way that everyone wants to conquer, but the conquering of their kingdom is evil. The conquering of Christ's kingdom is good. So it's, this is similar to when Israel entered into the land of Canaan and the Lord gave them, he straightly charged them that they should utterly destroy and devote to destruction every single enemy in the land. They shouldn't, they shouldn't spare, they shouldn't pity, and they should destroy all their gods. Nothing less will do. That's what's necessary. Nothing enrages the people who hate God more than the notion that he's ruler over all. Every person, everywhere, every place, at every time. And he's establishing his kingdom over individuals, communities, cultures, and every sphere of life. But there are even many Christians who are repelled by the notion of conquering, thinking that we, we need to roll over or we need to be lay down our life, which we do, but not in the sense that we compromise the truth of God's word and his laws that he's established and the way that he's orchestrated and organized the world. We don't roll over and give way to the enemies. And Roe is a perfect example of this because the reason that it was ever established in the first place is because the church was not living victoriously and living declaring boldly proclaiming the word of God and the truth of God. We let things slip, and so they came in. And even when it happened, there wasn't much of a fight that was put up. But it was those among us who were fighting 
that were the cause for it being overturned at last. And just think, if there was no sense of victory in, spe- in something specific, you know, victory out there, someday God will win. But, but if there was no sense, if Christians didn't really believe we can overturn this, we can establish justice and righteousness in the land, if, if we didn't have Christians like that, then it would still be in place, just as it was. But thanks be to God that he's used believers like that, and such should we be. So we can't escape the notion of conquering. We can't escape it from nature. Someone will rule and reign. It's just a question of who. And the same thing is true in all, all of the spheres of life, and government and politics and culture and everything. Some ideology and some worldview will rule and will be established as the precedent. It's just a matter of which one. But the enemy would like us to think, well, let's just leave that out there neutral. You can go into the church on Sunday and you can worship and you can go in your home and you can worship. But there needs to be a separation when you come out into the world. But that's not God's way. That's not the way that he has established it in the scriptures, or in nature, or in the scriptures, as we'll soon see. It's unmistakably prevalent in God's heart and in his mind throughout the Bible. And I want to look at that with you. And if you have your Bible, and I hope that you do, then you're welcome to attempt to turn to all these passages, though it would be at quite a rapid pace I'm really going to just fly through these. And actually, most of what I'm going to say from here on out would be little commentary, but just reading of different passages. And I'm going to race through them because we're looking to trace through the Bible the theme of conquering, the theme of victory, the theme of winning. So we're going to start out in the Old Testament. Before we do that, let's pray. And ask for the Lord's blessing. Father, blessed are you and your holy name. We pray that you teach us your statutes, that you deal bountifully with us, that we might live and keep your word. Open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your law. Hide not your commandments from us. Give us life according to your word. Make us understand the way of your precepts. Strengthen us according to your word. Graciously teach us your law and enlarge our hearts that we might run in the way of your commandments. We want to truly see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we rejoice in the privilege of being your body on the earth through which you are seeking to accomplish these things. And we know that you will speak to us, strengthen our hearts, convict us where appropriate, encourage us where needful and bless our time together. May we be able to get it all in and hear it all, not too fast, not too slow. In Jesus' name, amen. So we see the theme of conquering is established at the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 3, the first prophecy in Scripture. God says to the serpent, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or strike, or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We see it in the sacrifice of Isaac. Genesis 22, 15 through 18. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, 
I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And your offspring shall, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. We see in Genesis 49, 8 through 10, with the blessing of Judah. Jacob says, Judah, your brother, shall be, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crushed, crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. We see in the ten plagues, in the deliverance from Egypt, says Exodus 3, 19 through 20, But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. Exodus 6, 6 through 7, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Exodus 7, 3-5, But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Exodus 12, 23, For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood, speaking of the tenth plague, when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doorpost, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. We see it in the first song of Scripture. Right after the crossing of the Red Sea and the deliverance from Egypt, listen to these words. Moses' song, Exodus 15, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, and you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of the breath, at the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I'll pursue, I'll overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And the end of that song says, The Lord will reign forever and ever. We see this theme in the conquest of Canaan when it's promised in Exodus 23. Beginning in verse 23, When my angel goes before you and brings you to the Amorites and the Hittites and the Perizzites and the Canaanites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, and I blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. 
None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. And I will send hornets before you which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will drive them out from before you in one year. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Little by little, I will drive them out before you until you have increased and possessed the land. And we see that as a theme in the book of Joshua as it talks about the people of Israel coming in and taking the land that the Lord, their God, had given them. A theme of possession. Fifty-nine times in Joshua, the word inherit is used, inheriting the land. Twenty-five times the word possess is used, or possession. Seventeen times the word destruction. Devote to destruction, devote to destruction. They were devote everything to destruction, the people and all their idols. And I want to turn now and spend a good deal of time here in the book of Psalms. God's hymn book. We have sorely neglected the Psalms. I think here in previous years, and we've really sought to rectify that in present times. And then in general, the church of today has neglected the Psalms overall, both in singing and even in studying and reading. But there's perhaps no book in Scripture where this theme of conquering is more prevalent than in the Psalms. The Psalms is presented often as a book of comfort and consolation, which it is. But why is it comforting and why is it consoling? It's not just comforting in some nebulous, ethereal sense that I can read someone who really struggled and I can identify with them and I can feel their pain and their suffering and that, and that soothes my soul. No, what did the psalmist say? We'll see it in a minute. What did the psalmist say to comfort his soul? What was the continual cry when he was in distress, when he was in sorrow, when he was in hardship and difficulty? It was the continual proclamation of the victory of Jesus Christ, of the Lord his God. He was comforted because in the midst of affliction, he knew that God would win. And that therefore he would win overall. But it's not presented this way. We neuter the book of Psalms. The whole book, we neuter it and we pick out verses that are very soothing. But we, we strip out the promises to which the hope is attached. We must not do this. So let's look. I have many psalms here. I'm really praying that I can get through them all. And I even trimmed it down so much. But, but I, and I could have just picked one or two, but I really want you to see how this is not just an isolated passage in the Bible. It's not just an isolated psalm, one or two. It's the entire book. It's replete throughout it all. And it begins in Psalm 2. It really begins in Psalm 1, but we won't read that one. Psalm 2, verse 7 through 9 says, I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Some of y'all aren't ready for this. We're going to keep going anyway. Psalm 10, 12 through 18. Arise, O Lord. O oh God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, You will not call to account, but you do see. 
you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You've been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You straighten their heart. You incline their ear, your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. Psalm 21, 8 through 12. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath, and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight, and you will aim at their faces with your bows. Psalm 37, 9 through 22. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. This whole psalm is just full of promises, over and over promises. One of the best psalms. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart, and their bows shall be broken. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the day of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. Psalm 45, 1 through 7, and then at the end, verse 17. My heart overflows with the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Speaking of Jesus. Grace is poured upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. This is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Psalm 46, 6 through 11. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come, behold the works of the Lord. How he has wrought desolations on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the chariots with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Psalm 52, 1 and 5 through 8. Why do you boast of evil, O mighty man? The steadfast love of God endures all the day. But God will break you down forever. He will snatch and tear you from your tent. He will uproot you from the land of the living. 
The righteous shall see and fear and shall laugh at him, saying, See the man who would not make God his refuge, but trusted in the abundance of his riches and sought refuge in his own destruction? But I am like a green olive tree in the house of God. I trust in the steadfast love of the Lord forever and ever. Psalm 58, 6 through 11. Oh God, this is a prayer, an imprecatory prayer. Oh God, break the teeth in their mouths. Tear out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them vanish like water that runs away when he aims his arrows. Let them be blunted. Let them be like the snail that dissolves into slime, like the stillborn child who never sees the sun. Sooner than your pots can feel the heat of thorns, whether green or ablaze, may he sweep them away. The righteous will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will bathe his feet in the blood of the wicked. Mankind will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely there is a God who judges on the earth. Psalm 68, God shall arise, verse 1 through 3, and then 32 through 35, God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him. As smoke is driven away, so you shall drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. But the righteous shall be glad, they shall exult before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. O kingdoms of the earth, sing to God, sing praises to the Lord. To him who rides in the heavens, the ancient heavens, behold, he sends out his voice, his mighty voice, ascribe power to God whose majesty is over Israel and whose power is in the skies. Awesome is God from his sanctuary, the God of Israel. He is the one who gives power and strength to his people. Blessed be God. Psalm 72, 2 through 11. He shall judge. I'm going to read this from the King James because it renders it a little differently and I prefer it to the ESV. It says, he shall judge thy people. Speaking of Jesus Christ, he shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass as showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish, and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations serve him. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun. And men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Psalm 75, we give thanks to you, O God. We give thanks for your name is near. We recount your wondrous deeds. At the set time that I appoint, I will judge with equity. When the earth totters, the Lord speaking, and all its inhabitants, it is I who keep steady its pillars. I say to the boastful, do not boast. And to the wicked, do not lift up your horn. Do not lift up your horn on high or speak with a haughty neck. For not from the east or from the west, <clears throat> not from the wilderness comes lifting up, but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it, and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. But I will declare it forever. I will sing praises to the God of Jacob. All the horns of the wicked I will cut off. But the horns of the righteous shall be lifted up. Psalm 76, 7 through 12. But you are to be feared. Who can stand before you? 
when once your anger is roused. From the heavens you uttered judgment. The earth feared and was still when God arose to establish judgment, to save all the humble of the earth. Surely the wrath of man shall praise you. The remnant of wrath you will put on like a belt. Make your vows to the Lord your God and perform them. Let all around him bring gifts to him who is to be feared, who cuts off the spirit of princes, who is to be feared by the kings of the earth. Psalm 92, David already read it. I won't read that one again. Another wonderful example. Psalm 99, 1 through 5. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You've established equity. You've executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. Psalm 102, 12 through 17. But you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. You will arise and have pity on Zion. It's time to favor her. The appointed time has come. For your servants hold her stones dear and have pity on her dust. Nations will fear the name of the Lord, and all the kings of the earth will fear your glory. For the Lord builds up Zion. He appears in his glory. He regards the prayer of the destitute and does not despise their prayer. Psalm 110, the second most quoted text in the New Testament. Speaking of Christ, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people offer themselves freely on the day of your power and holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 125, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. Peace be upon Israel. We're almost done. Psalm 135, 5 through 14. For I know that the Lord is great and that our Lord is above all gods. Whatever the Lord pleases, he does in heaven and on earth, in the seas and all deeps. He it is who makes the clouds rise at the end of the earth, who makes lightnings for the rain and brings forth from the wind from his storehouses. He it was who struck down the firstborn of Egypt, both of man and beast, who is in your midst, O Egypt, sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, who struck down many nations and killed mighty kings, Sihon, king of the Amorites, and Og, king of Bashan, and all the kings of Canaan, and gave their land as a heritage, a heritage to his people Israel. Your name, O Lord, endures forever. Your renown, O Lord, throughout all the ages. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Psalm 145, Elijah read that one as well. The, one of the verses, verse 13, that says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. And lastly, Psalm 149, 4-9 says, For the Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the humble with salvation. Let the godly exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. 
Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is the honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. We'll come back to that shortly. This is the honor for all his godly ones. But remember, as you think about those, remember that how many of those psalms were penned and sung in the midst of what looked like crippling defeat. It looked like <clears throat> great distress, trouble, and hardship, and when victory looked impossible. And yet the psalmist is trusting in the Lord, trusting in the promises of the Lord. And so now let's turn to conquering in the New Testament. Conquering in the New Testament. And here we see the most ultimate and decisive victory of all time, which was at the cross. If you remember, a few weeks ago, I mentioned and pointed out that the beginning of both Jesus and John the Baptist's ministry was the, the cry and the proclamation to repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That was the reason why they were commanded to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was at hand, but it was not yet because before the kingdom could be inaugurated, <coughs> I'm sorry, before the kingdom could be inaugurated, Jesus had to do something. He had to conquer sin and death. We see that in Romans 6. It says, we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall be certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe we'll also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then in that glorious treatise of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul is speaking of the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and our bodily resurrection as a consequence of that, he concludes it with this and says, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through Christ Jesus our Lord. So Jesus conquered sin and death. Jesus conquered Satan and his demons. It says in Colossians 2, 13 through 15, You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of death that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then he adds this, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. He is a disarmed foe, the devil. So Jesus conquered sin and death. He conquered Satan and his demons. And then he resurrected, ascended to the throne. 
which is what Peter says, and he quotes old, some Old Testament passages in Acts 2 at the sermon at Pentecost. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Psalm 110, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And then we see maybe one of the most glorious pictures in all of Scripture, Revelation 5, as John is approaching the throne and he sees the vision of the Lamb of God. It says, Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or even look at it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep not! Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has what? Conquered. He has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So Jesus is reigning on the earth through his people, through his church, through his bride, through his body. We'll see that a little more here with some passages. It says that in Ephesians 1, 19 through 23, what it, it, and Paul's praying for the Ephesians here, and he prays that the, God would show them what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked when he raised him from the dead. <clears throat> worked according to his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come and he put all things under his feet and gave him listen to this he gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all that's us on the earth in Matthew 16, 18 through 19, when Peter makes that great confession that he's the Christ, the Son of the living God, and Jesus responds to him and says, I tell you, you're Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. it will, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. It says in Romans 8, 37, in all these things, all the tribulations and distresses, everything he talks about and lists at the end of that chapter, he says, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
And what does it say in 1 John 5, 4 through 5? Familiar passage. What's the victory that overcomes the world? Everyone who's been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the way that Jesus Christ concludes his remarks to each of the seven churches in Revelation, in chapters 2 through 3. He concludes with the phrase, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers, to the one who conquers. To Ephesus, he says, the one who conquers, I'll grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To Smyrna, he says, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Pergamum, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To Thyatira, the one who conquers and who keeps my works till the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from the Father, and I will give him the morning star. To Sardis. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. To Philadelphia, to the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. And to Laodicea, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. You cannot escape it. Christianity is a religion of conquering and of victory. And that is good news. It's good news for all because the way of life is the way which God has outlined. And so when other people, when evil people seek to conquer, They do so in oppression, and they do so to institute and establish evil and wicked ways that will ultimately end in destruction. But when Christ conquers through his church, and we are his hands and his feet, and we establish Christianity as the way, then it's good for people, and it ends in life. I want to read go back to the Old Testament as we conclude. I told you I was just going to read a bunch of passages and that was basically it. I've studied the Psalms for the past year, year and a half. I've been reading a Psalm every day and I've made my way through it I think two or maybe three times now. And I've never seen before this theme I'd never seen it so clearly. as Even as I saw it as I was preparing for this message, I had seen some of it I was reading through. Reading, but you just don't hear it really talked about. There's so much pessimism and negativity. And you say, oh, well, look at everything happening in the world. I guess the Lord will just take us out, you know, when he's ready. Or we can just hang on and make it to the end. But that's just not what you see in the Bible. That's not what you see in, in the psalm, psalms especially. That, that, that sentiment is not expressed. It's the sentiment of victory. And so, along those lines, I want to read to you from Numbers 13 and 14. As both an encouragement and a warning. 
Now this is when the Israelites were in the wilderness and they first came to the land of Canaan that the Lord their God had promised them, sworn to them. And they sent men to spy out the land. They sent 12 men, a man from every tribe. And I'll begin in verse, I'll begin in verse 17. I might summarize a little bit instead of reading because I'm going through chapter 13 and 14. But beginning in verse 17 of chapter 13, it says this, Moses sent them to spy out the land of Canaan and said to them, Go up into the Negev and go up into the hill country and see what the land is and whether the people who dwell in it are strong or weak or whether there are few or many or whether the land that they dwell in is good or bad or whether the cities that they dwell in are camps or strongholds and whether the land is rich or poor and whether there are trees in it or not. Be of good courage and bring some of the fruit of the land. Now the time was the season of the first ripe grapes. So they went up and spied out the land from the wilderness of Zin to Rehob near Labo Hamath. They went up into the Negev and came to Hebron. <coughs> Ahiman, Sheshai, and Talmai, the descendants of Anak, were there. Hebron was built seven years before Zoan in Egypt. And they came to the valley of Eskol and cut down from there a branch with a single cluster of grapes. And they carried on a pole between the two of them. And they also brought some pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eskol, which means cluster, because of the cluster that the people of Israel cut down from there. At the end of 40 days, they returned from spying out the land, and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh. They brought back word to them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told them, We came to the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, the people that dwell in the land are strong, and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the hill country. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea along the Jordan. But Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and occupy it, for we are well able to overcome it. Then the men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who came from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers in their sight, and so we seemed to them Okay, you got to understand, if you're not familiar with the background, or perhaps this is a good refresher even if you are, that this was a promise that the Lord swore. It was an oath that he swore throughout generations. I will give you the land. He swore it first to Abraham, and he continued to renew that promise throughout, and that, that covenant throughout the generations. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. So it's not just a one-time thing. And they're saying, oh, well, this seems too difficult. This was a well-understood promise. And their hope should have been their hope through generations. And so it says this in, in chapter 14. So you, you might look at that. You might look at that. They, they just said, oh, well, we can't. We can't do it. And now listen, if you're like me, then you look at that at face value, and it seems relatively innocuous. Okay, they just, yeah, they should have been with Caleb, but they just, you know, they needed some help. They were struggling with their unbelief. They just, you know, they needed some persuasion. 
It's a, it's, we can work on that. But that's not how God treats it. That's not how God treats it, as we're about to see. And, it, and they, were, they became violent about it, too. As we read this chapter, listen to all of the proclamations that God says about this people, what they had done, how he describes their unbelief, and the report that they brought back. It's no trifle. <clears throat> then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to him, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. It's always the cry, let's go back to Egypt. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the people of Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes and said to all the congregation of the people of Israel, The land which, passed through, which we passed through to spy it out is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord. <coughs> okay, so here he calls it rebellion. So start out. <clears throat> not just mere unbelief, rebellion against the Lord. And do not fear the people of the land, for they are bred for us. Their protection is removed for them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. What a great proclamation from those two. Then all the congregation, and then this is how they respond. Wonderful proclamation with this unassailable confidence in the Lord's promises and what he would do. Trying to persuade them. And this is how they respond. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will his people despise me? That's what they're doing, despising him. And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I've done among them? I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater, mightier than they. And so Moses intercedes for the people and pleads with the Lord not to destroy them. But to pardon is wonderful because he reminds the Lord as though the Lord needed to be reminded. But he invokes the declaration that the Lord gave him on Mount Sinai when he says, The Lord, the Lord, a God gracious and merciful. And he brings that back to the Lord and says, Lord, your God gracious and merciful. Remember and don't destroy this people. And it says in verse 20, the Lord said, I have pardoned according to your word. Okay, track with me here. This, everything that is said after this. It is a proclamation of judgment, but it's mercy. It's mercy from the Lord. Because his original intent was to destroy them utterly, all of them, and to start afresh with Moses. Moses intercedes, and the Lord mercifully hears. And this is, this is the Lord's mercy, what he said. I have pardoned according to your word, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice. Okay, here's some of the things that he's saying as he's describing this unbelief. They put me to the test. They haven't obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give their fathers and none of those who despised me. They despised me. None of them shall see it. 
But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit and has followed me fully, will bring into the land, into, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. Now since the Amalekites and the Canaanites dwell in the valleys, turn tomorrow and set out for the wilderness by the way of the Red Sea. And the Lord spoke to Moses and to Aaron, saying, How long shall this wicked congregation grumble against me? Another description, they're grumbling. I've heard the grumblings of the people of Israel, which they grumble against me. Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord. Listen to this. He rewards every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds. What, have, what you have said, he's saying this to the people, the, the wicked congregation. What you have said in my hearing, I will do to you. This is what they said. Your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness, and of all your number listed in the census from 20 years old and upward who have grumbled against me, not one shall come into the land where I swore that I would make you dwell except Caleb and Joshua. Now remember, he's, he's hearkening back to verse 2 when they said, oh, that we had died in the wilderness. And the Lord says, be it unto you according to your word. You will die in the wilderness. Because... They rejected. Your little ones who you said would become a prey, I will bring them into the land, and they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in the wilderness, and your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness forty years, and shall suffer for your faithlessness. Another description, faithlessness. Until the last of your dead bodies lies in the wilderness, according to the number of days in which you spied out the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity, 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. This is the last description. They are gathered together against him. In this wilderness they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. And the men whom Moses sent to spy out the land, who returned and made all the congregation grumble against him by bringing up a bad report about the land, the men who brought up a bad report of the land died by plague before the Lord. Of those men who went to spy out the land, only Joshua and Caleb remained. Okay, so, so he was, the Lord was merciful to those in the congregation who grumbled, who rejected, who despised by letting them live and not destroying them utterly. But the ten who brought the bad report and caused the others to stumble. <clears throat> so it's severe. It's severe. And here's the application that I want to make for us from this. Is don't be like those people. But we don't even see how tempted we are and how regular of a practice we make of having that kind of attitude lacking a confidence in the victory and the conquest of the Lord and trusting that He will fulfill all His promises, that they are all for us, yes and amen, in Christ Jesus. Every day we do this, all the time. And it was, I mean, sometimes I prayed to the Lord this morning, I was just kind of wondering before the Lord if He has a little bit of a sense of humor in the way that he teaches us hard lessons because I'm praying about these things, I'm confessing in my own life, you know, here's the ways that I've grumbled. Here, here's the way I'm perpetually grumbling. There are all these battles before me. I'm not trusting in your promises, trusting in your sufficiency. I'm complaining, I'm grumbling. This thing's happening, this thing's happening. So many things, Lord, it's hard to bear. I do this all the time. I'm praying for forgiveness. And then, and then I'm thanking him for all these battles, you know, and for all this testing. And then... One of my girls comes down with a lampshade 
from her room, and then another younger one comes down screaming because her hand is burned. So one of them ripped the lampshade off the lamp, and the other one touched the lamp and burned her hand on it. And I'm in the middle. I'm like, I'm trying to pray right now. I'm trying to prepare to preach a sermon. <laughs> you know, in my mind, that's like knee-jerk reaction. And I'm like, and then I, and I, you know, I dealt with it. And then I went back to pray before the Lord, and I was just like, you know what? This is the Lord is giving me a real life example and instruction of the very thing that I'm confessing to Him, and the very thing that I'm seeking to encourage all of you to not do and to do. You know, and so it was. It's wonderful the way that the Lord does that and instructs us. But things like that, it's little things like that in our daily life at home, at work, or even bigger picture things where we look out, we look out. I mean, think about it. Before you heard the decision about Roe, how many of you thought truly that it would be overturned in your lifetime? I didn't. You know, I prayed for it. How guilty are we of that? Where we look at things like that and say, oh yeah, Lord, Lord, please do it. But we don't really believe that he's going to do it. But how much do we limit him by unbelief? And how much does he say, okay, according to your word. According to your word. You know, you don't, you don't trust me for this. You don't believe me for this. You don't ask in faith. Well, according to your word. And he does it not, it's, it's, it's not retributive, but it's disciplinary. And it says, even when Jesus walked the earth, that he could do not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. So we're not to be like them. We're not to be like that. We are to have a mindset, not of pessimism and defeat, but of victory and triumph through Christ Jesus our Lord. In every moment, in every struggle and hardship and pain and difficulty and whatever, whether it's personal, whether it's corporate, whether it's out there, when we look out there and we look at our talent, we think, yeah, well, maybe the Lord could give us like a soul here or there, but is he really going to take over and establish his rule and his reign here? I want to believe him for that. I want to be like Caleb and Joshua in that sense. And it was interesting. I was talking with David LeBlanc before the message and he was before the gathering and he was saying you know it's a, it's a thing to marvel at the faith of Caleb and Joshua because it was 40 years from the time that they made that profession of faith before they ever even entered the land and we don't even know if they were privy to what the Lord said to Moses here we don't know if they knew that the Lord said to Moses those two will enter the land. Maybe they didn't know. Maybe they didn't know if they were going to enter the land. But they still believed God for the promise. And so should we. He is going to conquer. He's going to win. In Brattleboro, in Vermont, in America, in the world. He's going to win. And he's going to do it through his church. He's going to do it through us as individuals. He's going to do it through us corporately, together. This local expression and all of the church, he is going to be victorious as he disciples the na- as we disciple the nations and as they come to obey him in earnest. He's going to do it. Just all the things that, that, that we preached the past few weeks, he's going to do it through us worshiping, through us witnessing, through us fellowshipping, through us praying, through us serving, and through us believing. Speaking and acting like the promises of God are really true. Examine yourself this week 
and ask the Lord to search you and know you, to try you and know your heart and say, Lord, where am I not believing? Where do I have a defeatist mindset? Where am I giving up ground to the enemy through my unbelief? Where am I living like self-pitying and just feeling so sorry for myself? Look at all these things that happen. Maybe the Lord will help me. No, victorious Christian living. And if you find that the Lord exposes that sin to you, then dwell and meditate in the Psalms. Because it is a book of hope and consolation as we look to and trust in the Lord's victory and His eternal rule and reign over all the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these things. What can we even say to these things? We thank you for your exceeding great and precious promises and how they find their yes and amen in Christ to us. Thank you for this book that you've given us. It has all your promises that we can trust in, that we can hope in. Thank you for the book of the Psalms that we can hold fast to and find consolation in as we look to conquering, to victory. And we profess to you, Lord, that we look so forward and eagerly await the day when you will dispense with all of your foes, all evil, all wickedness and righteousness shall rule and dwell in the land and be established. And there will be no more sin at last. But until that time, help us to be like Joshua and Caleb, to trust you, to say we're well able to overcome. We are, for the Lord our God is with us and we're trusting in you. Make us like that. Search us. Truly, Lord, and expose to us all of our unbelief and our self-pity and make us the conquering church by faith that you intend for us to be. Every person in this room, I pray it for. We bless your name in Jesus' name. Amen.